You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for um, your great love for us. We thank you, Lord, for your death by which we are forgiven and free. And we ask now as we turn our eyes to this topic of what then do we do now? What now? How now shall we live? We ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you um, soften our hearts to hear what you would have us hear this morning? And would you always, by your grace, transform us into your likeness? In your name we ask. Amen. Well, good morning. Last week, we, we've, this is part three of four, but you don't have to go to all four for them to make sense, hopefully. Um, last week, we talked about sanctification as being growth and grace, as a way of saying, yes, it's, yes, it's possible and probable, likely, that we will also grow in holiness, which is another word for sanctification, in this life, and yet we know that we will never be perfect. We will not be truly holy until the last day when we're raised from the dead. Then we'll be raised perfected. When we die in this life, our sin will die with us finally and we'll be raised. And so we might see some change. More likely we'll see change in other people or we'll see change in ourselves as we look back retrospectively. But um, but we don't need to be fruit inspectors, as my mother says. We're not called to be always searching to see, have I changed enough yet? Is God okay with me yet? Have I changed enough? Growth is not meant to be um, something that we're obsessed about because it's actually not a work that we can do ourselves. Any growth is um, attributed to God's work in our lives. And so it's probably better for us as um, sinful human beings who are, yes, saved by grace, um, but are all too quick to take credit for things that are not our doing. Probably better for us to talk about sanctification as growth in grace rather than growth, growth in holiness. So if growing in grace does not involve a program for self-denial or self-improvement, it doesn't involve our own, um, our own regimen, so to speak, for our life, um, then what does it involve? How then would we understand um, what is it that we do in this life? Well, um, we talked last week, we just touched on four points about growth and grace before time was up. So I'm going to go back over these, then I'm going to go into them in some depth before I land on our fourth point and really spend more time on our fourth point. So first of all, um, four points about growth and grace, grace that um, if Christ is our sanctification, and that's some, a lot of the language that's used in the New Testament. And if union with Christ is the means by which we're sanctified in this life, then how is union with him affected except through faith? In this life, then, um, our, our goal would be to live by faith. And how is our faith in Christ strengthened? Um, except through reading the word, through the fellowship that we have um, as the body of Christ, through uh, the sacraments where we're reminded again and again of our need and of God's gracious provision and through God's work in the midst of the circumstances of our lives that are beyond our control that uh, strengthen and sharpen our faith. So again, those are aspects of, of that faith, of honing our faith, of, exalt, of allowing our faith to grow, of really getting out of the way and letting God grow our faith in him throughout this life. Um, another 
another point, point number two, um, the Holy Spirit is God's gracious gift for affecting union with Christ and for our renewal as his agent of change in our lives. Third, it is not so much that we are progressing toward a particular goal, a particular growth or a particular model that we're trying to achieve, but rather that that goal is approaching us through no work of our own. I love that language. We'll dig into that in a little bit. And then number four, growth and grace involves receiving forgiveness again and again and again. And we'll spend more time on that with our motto for Christian uh, sanctification in just a little bit. Well, so first of all, I'm jumping over point one because that's kind of self-evident. Point number two, um, receiving grace, part of receiving grace involves receiving the gift of God or the Holy Spirit. I love this passage from Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, where Jesus is um, telling his disciples to ask, to seek, to knock, and it will be open to you. And in Luke's particular um, version of this passage, it's very interesting because Luke is extra explicit about what we are to ask for. What kind of good gifts should we ask God for? He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is God's good gift, um, God's gr- uh, grace, in a sense, poured out upon us. One commentator or one, one theologian, my favorite theologian, writes that our sanctification is um, being made holy. And as such, it is not our work. It's the work of the Spirit who is called holy. Our sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit throughout Scripture is, um, there are a lot of metaphors used for what the Holy Spirit is like. It's kind of interesting, um, liquid or gas, elemental language is used, water, wind, fire. Um, the Holy Spirit is like wind in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he goes on in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is like wind. The Holy Spirit is like living water. Not just the stagnant water in a pond, but the living water of a stream that has an inlet and an outlet. Not like stewing in your own bath, but rather like a shower, cleansing, washing, washing down the drain, all impurities. Um, And we hear this in John's gospel again, in John chapter 4, where Jesus is engaging with the Samaritan woman. He tells her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water from that well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then in John chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, Jesus stands up and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John is explicit. John explicitly comments in John chapter 7, verse 39, that Jesus here is talking about the Holy Spirit, God's gift to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. Um, So what wonderful imagery. First wind now water, cleansing water um, that flows in and through us, that um, comes out of our bellies, flows from within us, and then flows through us from outside of us. Um, what wonderful language for understanding the Holy Spirit. 
the final element that we see in Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is like fire. Um, Again, at the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. And Luke writes to us in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, um, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Oh, do you hear the wind again? And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Water, wind, fire. There's some measure of mystery to every one of these elements. There's power and there is mystery. Where does it come from? Um, There's this um, sense in John 3. He says, the wind blows where it will. Um, And I think about our tornadoes in Alabama. They're a little scary. I love a nice breeze, but when you get that much of a breeze, it's too scary. Um, We think about water. Water is something wonderful and relaxing. We love going to the beach or sitting by the pool. But um, water can also be incredibly powerful when we think about um, the floods that come and go willy-nilly or hurricane season when all chaos breaks loose. Um, same with fire, too. I love to sit by a crackling fire in the fireplace. But um, but thinking about the summertime, all, all these summers where we've had those terrible wildfires out west show us that fire is not something to be, um, to be handled without respect. It's something that we need to respect and be in awe of. All of these are powerful forces, even for us post-industrial people, never mind for the people of the first century. What an image for the Spirit of God. What a way of understanding God's own Holy Spirit by which he works his work in the world and by which he works his work in us. What a life-giving image. Well, if the Holy Spirit is like water, like wind, like fire, we are seen as being like vessels or containers for the Holy Spirit um, that God delights to pour out upon us. One final word about the Holy Spirit is I like to think of the Holy Spirit because of this language Um, I had already given you that quote. Because of this language of um, liquid or uh, gas, like wind or the fire, I like to think of um, the Holy Spirit almost being like liquid grace. If the Holy Spirit is God's gift to us, um, grace is poured out to us in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. And because of Jesus Christ, grace is made available to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit anoints us and fills us. And the Holy Spirit changes us. The very presence of God dwells with us. And we are transformed into his likeness despite ourselves. Grace changes us. God, through the Holy Spirit, changes us. This is what it means when we say that we are God's workmanship. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. This is what um, the lead singer for the band U2 Bono says when he sings and croons, grace makes beauty out of ugly things. God makes us into beautiful beings despite ourselves. So um, sanctification happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, number three, all of our ordinary views of progress or or growth are turned upside down. It is not that we are somehow moving toward the goal, climbing a ladder, to reach and attain by our own strength what God um, desires for us to attain to. But it's rather that the goal is moving closer and closer to us. Maybe you've had that feeling as you age. You know, even at 39, I feel this way that um, 
I'm middle-aged. I'm middle-aged now. I know. You can say, no, no, you're not. But, I mean, I'd be happy if I lived till 80. That'd be great. I really am middle-aged. Like, it really is math. I really am middle-aged. And to think about death ever approaching, it's a terrifying thing. And yet it's also a beautiful thing in some ways. When we die, we will see our Lord face to face. We will be like him. We will see him as he really is. We will be perfect. All of the things that bother us about ourselves or about this world will be gone at that point. The goal is moving closer and closer to us. And this is true. The eschatological, the end times nature of the New Testament message means that growth in grace is not necessarily growth in virtue or morality. Instead of us reaching up and out to attain the kingdom of God, the kingdom has already broken in on us in Jesus Christ. And the event of his second coming gradually approaches us the longer that we live in this life and this world. Sanctification then is a steady invasion of the new the new world, the kingdom of God, the new creature in Christ. And I love how um, Luther puts it. Luther points out that it's not so much that sin is taken away from us, but rather that we are to be taken away from sin, heart, soul, and mind, as Luther put it. Luther points out also that it has more to do with our actual affections, this transforming of ourselves in this life rather than with a list of pious things to do. Somehow, by God's grace, we begin truly to love God and truly to hate sin. So again, then with this model in mind, sanctification does not involve journeying upward, but rather rather than climbing a ladder and journeying up towards this ideal that we think we can attain. Actually, sanctification involves traveling back down to earth becoming truly human, more truly human, more of the kind of good creature that God had made, more of his intention for us um, that Adam and Eve lost sight of so tragically. This kind of journeying downward involves spontaneity, truly good works that are uncalculating, freely and genuinely given, and then, I love this, quickly forgotten, even as Jesus said that the right hand would not know what the left hand is doing. Again, True sanctification is God's secret. This coming back down to earth, being a true human, involved does involve taking care of our neighbors, taking care of the world around us. And this is the content of those spontaneous good works. As Luther is famed to say, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And so again, being uh, becoming more earthly creatures in the best sense of the world, new creations who are receiving the grace of our creator and redeemer, we also are encouraged with this in mind by God to live into our vocations. Are you a baker? Wonderful. Luther was famous for loving and endorsing all of the vocations. You don't have to be in ministry vocationally to be following the Lord Jesus Christ to the best of what he's called you to do. You have to do what he made you to do. And what you made you, he made you to do might be involved being a, an investment banker or a school teacher or a farmer or any number of things, a bank teller. Any one of these things are a wonderful vocation. And so living as a Christian involves living in the midst of the tasks and occupations of daily life, <clears throat> no matter how mundane they may be, rather than escaping from the earthiness of this world for some kind of supposedly more spiritual existence. This is it. 
we might think, um, I love this phrase, that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Sometimes we think that as we grow in grace, we'll become so spiritual that all we'll think about are, are spiritual things. And, and yet God wants us to be earthly minded people. He will take care of the spiritual things in our lives, even as we're um, connected to him by faith. Um, again, we're not meant to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. So my final point <clears throat> is that grace involves receiving forgiveness again and again. The life of sanctification involves repeatedly hearing and responding to Jesus' gospel call in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe. As Luther wrote, to progress is always to begin again. I love from scripture, from Lamentations chapter 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. This beginning again means that we're living out this life of repentance. And this life of repentance is not meant to be a life of constant groveling. Um, I think of Monty Python and the groveling in the search for the Holy Grail, if you've ever seen that, that spoof. Oh, God bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Winston. Um, that, that it's not about groveling. A life of repentance is not about crawling around, um, self-flagellating, um, saying the worst things about us. It's actually a, a life instead of honest self-examination, confession, receiving forgiveness again and again, and it can happen with a lot of humor. Um, again, we, we confess again and again. We do this when we come together for worship. This is why we, um, we confess, whether it's morning prayer at the very beginning or Holy Communion after the prayers. We confess our sins every time we come together and gather for worship. And this is why on our own it's helpful to stay in the Word of God and in prayer because the witness of Scripture will show us what true obedience look like, looks like. And um, in this reading and through prayer while staying connected to the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit then will also convict us of our sin. That's how we um, fall on our faces and are convicted is when we see the perfection that's found in Scripture where we say, I have not been righteous. So again, <clears throat> this beginning again is still passive. It's a surrender, allowing God to be the one to do his work in us, to humble us. This kind of surrender is truly um, a kind of death. As Luther says, a perfect sanctification takes place only in death. Let me say that again. Perfect sanctification takes place only in death. And yet in this life, there are little deaths, little deaths to self that are an outworking in some ways you could say of our baptism where we are buried in Christ and we rise again with him, buried, submerged under the waters of baptism. Um, and then these little deaths to self along the way prefigure our own death when sin will die with us, never to rise again. Again, these little deaths, I call it death because it's a death to our pride to say, yeah, I did that, or I probably would have done that, or I should have done something else, and I didn't do it. Um, that, that takes a death to our own ego to be able to admit that. I'm going to pause right here before, before I go on, before I talk about hypocrisy. Whew, 
Um, and see, does anybody have any comments? I've talked about a lot. I've talked about four different points for sanctification as being growth in grace rather than growth in holiness. Um, again, this is our mindset for viewing it and understanding it. It's growth in grace rather than saying a growth in holiness where it's up to me to achieve some kind of outcome. Any thoughts so far? Any Anyone have any questions or pushback? I love pushback. It does. It really does. Yeah, it really does. It does. It's Yeah, I, I love thinking about all of the things that are wrong in this life and, and knowing that they'll be made right in the next. And I love thinking, too, about heaven, you know, the earthiness that I was talking about under point number three, that earthiness and the down-to-earthiness that's actually right there, especially in Scripture in the very last book of the Bible in Revelation after Jesus comes back. The new heaven and the new earth, everything will be remade. Everything will be destroyed that we see now, and everything will be remade. And God's throne will descend from heaven as the new Jerusalem descends. And his throne will now be for all eternity on earth. Instead of being kind of abstract and invisible and apart from us, he will be in our very midst, which is something exciting to think about, that we're not just snatched away to live life on a cloud, which sounds very boring, but actually all the beautiful things and this world will be remade and perfected. Thanks. It seems that uh, right, justification is a uh, we're justified. That's an act that was done for us. Mm-hmm. But sanctification takes our participation. Yes. That's fair. Yes, it's fair. I mean, I think even so, justification, <laughs> we say throughout Scripture that Christ died for all, but not all are saved. We wouldn't say there's universal salvation because you have to say, Yes, I need a Savior. There has to be that willingness to humble ourselves and say, yes, I need a Savior and to receive. So justification is absolutely by grace through faith, not a result of our own works. Um, And so our participation in justification is to say, yes, please, I'll have some of that. And right. And so what I would say is what I'm trying to say is that sanctification, yes, involves our participation and our willing participation, but that our willing participation looks more like our yes, please, I'll have some of that, that, that it looks like with justification, than what some people would say, which some people, when they talk about our sanctification, some theologians, well-meaning theologians or pastors will say, well, here is the law, just go do it. And what I'm saying is that because of the overlap in the ages, which is something I talked about in our first class, because we are totally still sinful, uh, the sinful self still lives within us. Romans 7, we, we see our sin, we see that um, even though Jesus has bought us back from the penalty of sin, the presence of sin is still here until we die. And yet we are also totally saints in him. We're totally righteous. We're declared righteous from the moment of Christ's death and resurrection, from the moment of our belief in him. So because of that totality, totally sinners, totally saints, at the same time, the sinner hears, go do this, and says, seems to think again of the program of works. Well, if I go do this, then God will do this. Um, we think of, we just can't get away from our sinful human vending machine reality. If I put in my 65 cents, then God will give me a Coca-Cola. I would just think about whenever people are, I get so mad when it eats my money. And I want to hit the machine. And you see people hitting the machine when it doesn't give them their candy bar or whatever it is. The same thing happens spiritually. If we approach our sanctification with a mindset of, well, I'm going to do all these things. 
Because we, we often will say, well, I'm going to do all these things, then God is going to do thus and such for me. We can't help but think that way. And so what that happens, and I talked about this a little bit our first week, when we approach our sanctification in that mindset, then we'll get angry with God when he doesn't give us what we perceive that we deserve. Or when it, it happens so painfully when, for example, say someone is diagnosed with cancer, and they're the best Christian you've ever met, and we all think, why did this have to happen to them? But usually when it's the best Christian you ever met, they're actually not thinking, I can't believe you're doing this to me, God. Maybe they are. But when we, th- when we have this mentality of works, of participation, where, where it's really active on our part and we just have to do what we're supposed to do, then we often will resent God if we get cancer or if a child dies or if um, our job, we don't get a promotion at our job, we'll think, I've been doing all this stuff. Why is this not happening? So that's why I'm trying to get us away from that mindset and that mentality by approaching our sanctification with different eyes and with a different mentality. Um, but Liz, did you want to comment on that or question? Or? I wanted to comment on your yesterday about that because Yeah, God is the one who changes our heart to be able to say, who reveals our sin to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and convicts us of our sin. And then by his grace, shows us and, and even speaks within us, rises up within us by faith. He's the one who gives us our faith. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. God is the one. If you didn't hear Liz, she said, God is the one who says, yes, please, I'll have some of that through us, even at our justification. And then, of course, with our sanctification as well. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah, Kristen. I want to repeat that. If everyone, not everyone heard, Kristen said that uh, a quote about Christ being in Christ, being hidden in him. He is in this life bending our will back into submission to God. That's absolutely right. And that's absolutely what I'm going for. Again, it's his work in us. It's by virtue of our union with him which is a very, which is all throughout scripture, all throughout the New Testament, this understanding of being even hidden in him, covered by his righteousness through our justification, and then also in this life. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I'm going for really in saying this is that um, I'm thinking about the internal monologue. Maybe it's the actor in me that's always thinking about the internal monologue that happens. Um, maybe it starts out with, oops, I did it again. There it is. I'm, I'm gossiping about this person or I've just lied, told a little white lie or I'm um, trying to justify myself in this setting. Whatever it is, whenever we spot our sin again, if our response is one of um, 
oh no, why did I do that again? I need to get my act together. That phrase, I gotta get, I gotta get my act together. Off, that's still the sinful man saying, I've gotta get my act together. But it's the, it's the saint that says, there I go again. There I go again. Have mercy on me. It's that constant falling on our knees to trust that God's mercy is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for us. Even when we do it again, even when we sin again, 70 times seven and, and then some, that um, he is not surprised by our sin. God is grieved by our sin, but he's not surprised by it. And so that really is going to, um, let me get to some of my next little working out of what this um what this life of repentance can look like. And then I'd love to hear more questions and comments. So if you have any more questions, feel free to bookmark them in your mind. Um, this self-examination, Lord willing, this um, constant repentance and receiving forgiveness again and again, it's a, it's a wonderful antidote, a wonderful way to combat hypocrisy, which is such a dangerous thing for us. It's, we're so in danger of becoming hypocrites as Christians. As we seek to strive to live this righteous life outwardly, the, pro, the fear is that, well, and especially in, in a place like Birmingham where Christian society is very real and, and very um, strong, you can't let your friends from this or that club know that this or that is going on in your life because it will have social ramifications. That's a very scary place to be in because what it means sometimes is that your insides can't match your outsides if society is always going to be judging us. And yet our goal as Christians is always to have our insides match our outsides. Um, hypocrisy is a word. Even the word hypocrisy comes from the Greek uh, actors who would wear masks. There's a mask on the outside, and then a, the real face is behind the mask on the inside, and no one will see the real face. That's the danger with hypocrisy, that no one will see the real face. Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he called them, you whitewashed tombs. Um, first of all, he said, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And then again, he said, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Do you hear that two-facedness? The outer righteous deeds masking an inner unrighteousness, pride, um, self-righteousness, um, anger, all sorts of things cropping up insides. Again, the goal of a Christian, the goal in this Christian life is for our insides to match our outsides. It doesn't matter if we have outwardly righteous actions or good works outside of us if our hearts are full of all sorts of darkness. And so again, this self-examination, it's not to shame us. It's rather to open up the tomb and allow the dark places to see the light of Christ, to trust um, that God's love uh, will change us um, even as we're already forgiven. And so again, this self-examination is in repentance. It is a kind of death, um, but while it's a kind of death, it does not have to be deathly serious or even self-righteously somber. Um, it doesn't have to be a fearful thing either. Um, I love the um, I love the twelve steps, and if you don't know anything about the twelve steps. I'd encourage you to just find out. They're wonderful. Um, they're actually started, the 12-step program was started by Christians. And step four of the 12 steps um, calls for making a fearless moral inventory of our lives. And, and again, this is not just something for addicts to um, those who are addicted to alcohol or sugar or narcotics, this or shopping. 
the 12 steps can be helpful for that. Re there really is a shop shopaholics. Um, the 12 steps really can be helpful for all of us. If you consider that as um, sinners and saints, we're addicted to sin. Sin itself is an addiction. And so step four, making this fearless moral inventory is not something that can happen unless there's love. We can't fearlessly look at our insides and examine ourselves unless we know the love of God. Because um, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And so if we're afraid of looking at ourselves truly, it's because we haven't truly received the gospel or we need to hear it again. We need to hear that we are loved even as we are because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We have to begin again, go back to the foot of the cross every hour of every moment, every moment of every hour of every day, because there we receive that love again. And that gives us the freedom um, to be able to fearlessly examine ourselves again we can examine ourselves without shame or fear because we know that what christ has done for us because of that there is now no condemnation in him and that freedom from condemnation that love casts out our fear of what we will find when we look at ourselves truly um, so again this searching uh, in this searching when we see what we see when we examine ourselves there's also this Danger that we will justify ourselves, either to other people or to God, or to um, where we'll say, oh, well, this is because of that, or this is because so-and-so did so-and-so. God does not want to hear our excuses, and rehearsing them on other people is a sinful way of denying our own responsibility for our sin. So again, all of this is only possible by God's grace, but the doing of it is more like dying than like trying. It's more like dying to what comes our way as he reveals our sin to us, as he shows us what we really look like on the inside as well as on the outside. There's this falling to our knees, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit that causes us to do that. But there's, um, but, um, and so again, it's, it's, a, it's a dying, it's a more passive thing than the active program for our own righteousness. So what I would say, and this is kind of the point of this whole class, <laughs> my Deborah Layton's own antidote for the poison of hypocrisy, um, my kind of way of, of trying to uh, silence my own self-righteousness, my own self-justification, is to take on the motto, I wouldn't put it past me. Uh, I wouldn't put it past me. This is a slogan that I hope encompasses the honor, and, or excuse me, the honesty and the humor, the down-to-earthness um, that I've been talking about, the fearlessness of judgment and the silencing of self-justification. This is something that would be on the lips of the creature who's striving to live humbly by faith. I wouldn't put it past me. Um, again, there continues to be shock and contrition for our sin, but we ought to no longer be surprised of it, surprised by it. Oh, I did that. I sure did. Not again, Lord. Here I go. <laughs> Forgive me. Lord, have mercy. Did I really just do that again? I wouldn't. Or when someone, the worst is when someone accuses you of something. Um, when someone accuses you of something that you think you didn't do, I, I think the best way to um, take that on is actually to say, I wouldn't put it past me. I'm not sure. I probably didn't do that. Maybe I did. M maybe I did do that. Rather than, no, 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 I didn't. Maybe I did. I wouldn't put it past me. I wouldn't put it past anyone. I loved one of the things that I love, one of the many things I love about Frank Limehouse, and I don't know where he got this phrase, but when there would be a notorious example, for example, a pastor, 
very publicly falling into sin and his sin becoming publicly known and it's all on the news. That kind of horrific, um, devastating thing. When we see Christians doing terrible things, we often are shocked by it. And sometimes we can be overwhelmed by it because we expect more out of ourselves. We expect more from Christians. And yet for every Christian, there's that fully sinful, fully a saint reality. And so I loved how Frank would say about the sin of others that he was shocked but not surprised. That's really helpful for me. When you read the news, and it could be about Christians, it could be about non-Christians. We're all shocked. Of course we're all shocked by all of this but are we really surprised? Um, we're shocked, but not surprised. And so then that, for me, that went to, well, I put, wouldn't put it past him, wouldn't put it past her. And I started to say that in my mind when I saw sin on the news or sin in the church or wherever, I wouldn't put it past so-and-so just because sin is real, even for us as Christians. And then I felt convicted about it. And I thought, well, if I'm saying I wouldn't put it past so-and-so, I'll probably also need to say I wouldn't put it past myself. I need to turn the mirror, the gaze of criticism and the gaze of examination inward and to say of myself, I wouldn't put it past me. Um, So again, this life of repentance, one final note about this, and then I'll take some questions. It's like a revolving door. If you've heard me use this image before, please forgive me. But one of my favorite images for the life of the Christian life and this life of repentance is to think about it as a revolving door. I hate revolving doors because I don't like being out of control. And I feel out of control when the door is like pushing you around. And horror of horrors, when I first flew to Birmingham to interview for this job six years ago, over six years ago, the old airport, if you remember, had an automatic revolving door that you couldn't you really couldn't control and to hop in there with a suitcase and try to get around it was terrifying to me I would say that this is what the Christian life the life of repentance is like God by the power of his Holy Spirit moves us from this place of um, bold self-righteousness I can do I can do I can do he shows us our sin despite ourselves through suffering through the circumstances of our lives we fall on our knees in repentance Um, And he, by the power of his Holy Spirit, lifts us up, puts us on our feet again. We go out to seek to serve him. He shows us our sin. We fall on our knees. He forgives us once again. He sets us on our feet and sends us out. It is a a revolving door that we're not in control of. Um, Again, we're not in control of this life, but we can trust that God who is faithful will do it. He is the one who will change us despite ourselves. So I'd love to take a couple questions before um, I close and pray, but that's that's what I have for us today. Any other thoughts, questions, rebuttals? Yeah, please. Yeah, please, Liz. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late, and usually that's followed by, you know, yes. dog had an accident or whatever. The dog ate my homework? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was an accident on 280. That's the best one. I've literally been in a moment where I was running late, and there was an accident, and I was like, yes, I can say there was an accident, <laughs> but it's really that I was running late. Yeah, and I, I, I've tried to do that, like, in emails, you know, if I say, I'm sorry, just try to say, I'm sorry, you know, or it's, it's hard to not make an excuse, but then you look at all your excuses, and they're always so Mm-hmm. They're always to make our excuses are to make us look good. Right. That's a kind of verbal self-justification. 
to say, yeah, I did that. But here's why I did that. So you're going to forgive me based on me because I didn't actually do anything wrong is what it's saying. Instead of just saying, I did something wrong. And I'm going to sit in that place of being wrong. Right. And it's then, hard. And my second comment was yeah. like this in marriage too. I've kind of got to the point where I just like don't want to fight anymore. You know, we have three small kids. It's just stressful anyway. So it's like, oh, you forgot to put it, pull up on Charlotte. You know, she went to bed. Yeah, I'm sorry. I did do that. Like, I'm not going to make an excuse. Like, why bother, you know? Yeah. That's just, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like we're kind of getting there a little yeah. bit better. Yeah. 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 And that's where also. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's. Yeah. It is the Holy Spirit, and the, and it is then also the Holy Spirit when your spouse says, there we go, let's change the I mean, bed. Like, what are you going to do? What like, are you going to do? I mean, you know. Oh, yeah, or like, <laughs> yeah, I did it. I mean, it's just like, and, and also one of the things I love about marriage is that we're responsible. We're taking on each other's sin. There's someone else. There's something beautiful, and this can happen even if you're not married. There's something beautiful about someone being in it with you with your own sin. Yeah. Without there being that judgment and also being willing to clean up after your own sin also. There's that identifying that happens when you're one flesh of saying, I'm taking this on. I'm taking, I'm taking all of who you are on. And it's not because I can do it. It's only because we're married, you know, we're in God's covenant. Yeah, he's the one who will do it through both of us. Thank you, Liz. That's great. That's good. It's really good. Any other thoughts or questions? The bells are ringing. Hey, yes, please, Joe. I have these flashbacks to childhood. Yeah. When my mother used to tell me, never miss an opportunity to keep my mouth closed. <laughs> <laughs> never miss an opportunity to keep my mouth closed. That's another good motto for sanctification. Never miss an opportunity to keep my mouth closed. Thank you. That's great. Um, we also had another one earlier as we were preparing for class. Get out of the way. Which I like. Deborah, just get out of the way. Let God do his work. So with that in mind, let's close in prayer with this prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.